Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today we're talking about understanding your child's unique nature so that you can have an easier time parenting them and so that you can help them thrive as the kid they are. Joining me is Dr. Danielle Dick. She's the Distinguished Professor of Psychology and Human and Molecular Genetics at Virginia Commonwealth University, where she directs a research institute on behavioral and emotional health. She is internationally recognized and award-winning as an expert on genetic and environmental influences on human behavior. She's written hundreds of peer-reviewed papers, won awards in this academic world, but she's also generously shared this knowledge with the rest of the world so that we don't just have it stuck in academia. And what I love about this conversation is when we have opportunities to understand that the science can help us parent the kids we have and also have some compassion for ourselves and other parents because there is no one size fits all and you are just much better off approaching parenting based on your child's temperament. And you cannot change temperament because you want to will it that way. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to give it a five-star rating and maybe a little review. And of course, giving me feedback and questions on my Instagram at Raising Good Humans podcast. I will answer questions on reels and on stories and on my substack, drlisapressman.substack.com. I'm also telling all of you something that I have not announced out in the world yet. I'm going to be doing that next week, but just to let you know, because I'm so excited, I have a book coming out in January. It is ready for pre-sales and I cannot wait to tell you all about it. It's called The Five Principles of Parenting, Your Essential Guide to Raising Good Humans. I'm so excited to get it in your hands. I'm going to do lots of things to make sure that I can get little bits of it to you early if you order in pre-sales. If you try to do that now, you probably can, but make sure to keep a copy of your receipt because I will be doing pre-sale specials and I want to make sure you can benefit. So there are so many directions for us to go in. It's very unusual to do a parent-directed book from someone who's 
work is primarily in an academic institution. And it's so refreshing. Well, you know, it's sweet to hear you say that. And as I say in the book, one of the things I became passionate about probably midway through my academic career was the idea that we generate all this research and we spend all of our time as scientists talking to other scientists, presenting at scientific conferences, writing things up in scientific journals, writing more grants to the National Institutes of Health to do more science. And we spend very little time. And candidly, the university reward system is not set up to incentivize actually getting research out to people who can use it. Need it. Yeah. And I had this moment kind of midway through my career where I thought, is my goal to just write hundreds of more scientific papers? And so I can say at the end of my career, oh, I had 300 mid-career and now I've written 700 papers by the end of my career. And how is this actually having an impact? And so that kind of coincided with my thinking about how we can do more to get science out to the people who can use it and my having a child. And I found myself raising the high-risk child that I study, you know, oh, the irony highly impulsive, highly emotional. And I realized the research was such a lifeline for me. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I started paying attention to what was out there in parenting blogs and parenting magazines and the parenting literature. And I realized that so much of it didn't talk about the things that we were focused on and that I knew to be true from the research. And that's really what led me to think, gosh, I have to do more to try and get this information out to other parents. And that's what led me to write my book, The Child Code. I'm so glad you did. And I feel the same way. I definitely had no intention of doing anything but staying in academia. And then I had babies like at the beginning of my career. So it was pretty early on. And I was so mesmerized at how there is so much that we can learn and share, but it stays in this tiny space of this academic bubble, which is also making huge contributions because, of course, it informs policy and treatment and so many things. But you're absolutely right. There's a lot that can get to parents that doesn't need to go through all of the avenues that parents typically have to take to even get to information. Yes. And my area of research is behavior genetics. And so I study how Our genes come together with our environments to influence child and adult outcomes. And one of the things that I was so struck by is that the information about how much our kids' genes influence their behavior just really wasn't out there in the parenting literature. And I think that there's good reason for that because often parents are looking for information about what can I do? What can I do about temper tantrums or how do I help my child develop? And it feels like the genetics part is irrelevant. So we might think about the genetics when we're pregnant because, you know, they might be doing some testing and you're hoping everything is okay. And then I sometimes jokingly say, you know, as soon as that baby enters the world, it's like, okay, game on. Now it's all on me. And I actually think the problem with ignoring the fact that our kids all have these unique little codes that helped wire their brains and their development from early on. By ignoring that, we make it so much harder on ourselves as parents because 
I think we place a lot of pressure on ourselves that we have to do everything just right to optimize our child's development and to raise them into the little human being that we, you know, these dreamy people that are far better than us, right? That we imagine that we can raise them to be. And when children are struggling, I think the parents a lot of time then look inward and say, what am I doing wrong? Totally. And the reality is a lot of child behavior is genetically influenced, both normative behavior. It's why some kids are more fearful or anxious or more impulsive or more extroverted. And it's also why some kids have challenges in these realms, why some kids are so anxious, right, or so impulsive. And so I think, no, we're not going to change their genes, but by understanding kind of how they're naturally wired, it can help us a lot in our parenting and figuring out what's going to work best for each of our kiddos, because of course, they don't all respond to parenting in the same way. And, you know, what kind of things will work best, how we can take some of the pressure off of ourselves as well. So here's what I want to do today, because I love this. There's two sides of parenting mattering. (laughs) One is the side where you think, okay, the environment of parenting can support kids and is so powerful for environmental influences, which still doesn't mean all the things you were talking about, you know, it doesn't mean that we can take who they are and change them into something that we've decided they should be. But it's empowering on the one hand to think there are certain things we can do as parents to support our kids' development. On the other side of it is, if you think that that's what it's about, then of course, every time you have anything but a really easy child who has the exact fit with your temperament that grows into the exact person you had your hopes and dreams attached to, you will think that it was something wrong with you, that you're a less than parent. So this information is so critical because we can actually raise the kids we have and support them as best we can. And now a quick word from my sponsor. It's that time of year where you're starting to think about back to school shopping. And it was so fun to show my girls Stitch Fix because basically you go online and you look at the styles and pick kind of cool things that you're into. And then Stitch Fix gets to know your family and they do all the work so you can have time to focus on other things that are on your plate. And it's just the best way to shop for the littles. No more worrying about finding clothes, no more meltdowns. Stitch Fix engages them and makes them be able to make some of the decisions. There's a stylist that's kind of doing the shopping for you and you save time, which we love. And all the try-ons are in the comfort of your own home. And then you can send them right back if they don't work. You just share the size, colors, and styles that you like. With clothes starting at just $10, it's a really affordable option. Get 10 items in a kid fix. Keep what they like and send back the rest for free. No subscription required, no commitment, no risk to try Stitch Fix for your family today. Try Stitch Fix today at stitchfix.com slash humans and get 25% off when you keep everything in your kids fix. That's stitchfix.com slash humans for 25% off stitchfix.com slash humans. That's stitchfix.com slash humans for 25% off stitchfix.com slash humans. Support from today's episode comes from iHerb. 
iHerb offers the best curated selection of wellness products at the best possible value across a variety of categories, such as supplements, nutrition, beauty, even baby. When it comes to you or your family's health, ingredients matter, and iHerb cares about what's actually inside every bottle that makes up your morning routine, your kids' routines, your cool-down routines, your bedtime routines, and more. You can search by category, brand, or ailments, and you can further narrow your search by ratings, price, even diet like vegan. They've really thought of everything to make shopping for these products convenient, easy, and way less overwhelming than usual. And for a limited time, new customers will get 22% off their entire order with our exclusive offer. Go to iHerb.com and use the promo code HUMANS to get 22% off. I just used it for my omega-3 supplements. I'm taking Nordic Naturals, and it's really good for brain health, and I'm currently in need of extra support for brain health. (laughs) It's time to get your health in check with iHerb. New customers get 22% off your first order when you use the code HUMANS at iHerb.com. That's 22% off your first order at iherb.com, promo code HUMANS. Choose iHerb because wellness matters. How do we figure out this code, who we're getting so that we can support them in the best way? So, Eliza, I love what you just said about it's both, right? Just because they have these natural genetic temperaments doesn't mean that the environment isn't important. It's obviously both. We're not working with a blank slate. We can't paint them into exactly who we want them to be. But the flip side is it's not like, we'll throw up your hands. There's nothing we can do. And as you know, in developmental psychology, we sometimes talk about the reaction range, meaning you could, for example, take a child who is naturally more introverted And you can help them develop social skills such that they can be able to interact with other individuals. They'll grow up into somebody who can have a nice adult conversation at a work party. You're probably never going to be able to take that child and turn them into somebody who is going to want to be the center of attention, dancing on parties, you know, when they're dancing on tables at parties. So there is a a range, right, where you can take a child's temperament and through the environment, help them become the best version of themselves. But to get at the very beginning of where do their temperaments come from? In behavior genetics, we sometimes jokingly say, everyone is an environmentalist until they have their second child. Yes. And then you realize I'm doing all the same things and yet this one is turning out so different, right? The first one slept, this one never sleeps. The first one, you know, would happily eat whatever I put in front of them. And this one pushes it all off the tray. So their genes are influencing the way their brains are wired. And then that shows up in these differences that we often call temperament or as kids get older personality. And then of course that influences the way that they move through the world. And so in research, we have a whole series of questionnaires that we give to parents and to kids, depending on their age, that ask them about, you know, a whole series of different behavioral dimensions. And I often talk about the big three, and this isn't anything that's directly lifted out of the academic literature, 
this is really bringing all these different studies together and sort of the heuristic I use to think about really what are three big dimensions we know kids differ on. I call them the three E's. The first is extroversion, just like how adults are you know, either more or less extroverted. That is genetically influenced and we see that in kids too. And often we don't talk about it as much in kids. And that can be a big mistake because, you know, we'll kind of have the kids along for the ride often with what we're doing. And very often what we're doing is a reflection of our temperament and personality. So I'm a big extrovert. My son is far more introverted. So I used to drag him to all these fun Saturday morning play dates with all my friends and their kids, and he would freak out. And eventually I realized, oh, this is a mismatch in our temperaments. And it was creating all this family stress. And by being then intentional and recognizing that we could, you know, adapt. So the first one's extroversion. The second one is emotionality. Some kids are just much more prone to fear, frustration, distress. You know, these are the kids who it seems like they are getting really upset over, quote, nothing, or it's no big deal. Their responses are disproportionate. Of course, this is a temperamental characteristic that can be particularly challenging for parents. And my son was, you know, high emotionality, high, high M child, I call him low X, low extroversion, high M, high emotionality. And of course, there are strategies that can work better for helping kids really work through and manage some of those big feelings and very often our natural instincts as parents, which is to clamp down on what we see as, quote, bad behavior, in fact, has the unintended opposite effect of perpetuating and making the behavior worse. So, and then the last one is, you know, of course, what, you know, we call in the literature effortful control, or most parents really refer to as self-control or impulsivity. And so that is how much can kids keep their behavior reeled in. And of course, this is something that develops slowly for all kids across development because it's related to prefrontal cortex, part of the brain that develops fast. So it gets better. Time is our friend in this sense. But some kids are, of course, just naturally better at regulating themselves than other kids. So those are kind of some of the three big ones I I talk about in my book. And essentially, I took the surveys that, you know, you and I use in our research and really shortened them into what are the key items that really help you recognize these behaviors in your kids so that you can, you know, take these kind of short surveys and figure out where your child falls on each of these dimensions. And when people are listening to this, Those are those moments that feel so validating because one thing that happens, and it's really unfortunate, is for those that don't have a low X, high emotionality, it feels like it must be the parents. It must be that the parents didn't thrust that kid into enough of those quote unquote fun experiences. So they get really freaked out whenever they're around lots of people or whenever there's loud, you know, crowds or parties or whatever it is that their child might be enjoying. And it's so heartbreaking, actually, because here we have parents blaming each other and themselves when, in fact, what 
we're actually saying is I'm making a judgment call on who's a better kind of person to be in this world. I'm so glad you raised this. This is one of the things that makes me saddest about parenting and the way we treat other parents. And that I really hope that the more we get information out, and really it was one of the reasons that I also wrote my book, the more we can be kinder and gentler with other parents. Because I think if we're honest, all of us have done it at one point or another. We have looked at that parent whose child is throwing a massive temper tantrum in Target or the teenager who's talking back to their parent. And we look at you know that child and that parent, we think, oh, that parent really needs to you know fill in your favorite parenting advice there. And the reality is that those are the parents that most need our support. And the really interesting thing that I think comes out of the literature is that actually parents tend to be more similar at the beginning, right? If you ask people about how they will raise their children, that they have, you know, ideas about, well, obviously when children misbehave, you tell them that's not appropriate and there's a consequence and then they learn to behave, you know? And so we have all these ideas about, well, this is how you should do it. And the key piece is, as you mentioned, when you have a child with an easy temperament, and I will say that my son was the opposite extreme of he was very challenging. My stepdaughter is that easy temperament. I didn't know children could be so agreeable and delightful because certainly like, you know, my my siblings, none of our children who have lots of, you know, high emotionality genes running through our family, none of them were that easy. None of my friends had kids that were easy. But when you do have a child that is largely, you know, compliant, good self-regulation, very agreeable, then the things that kind of naturally come to you as a parent, they misbehave. You say, hey, that's not appropriate you know, don't do it again, or you implement a consequence and they realize, oh, not going to do that again. And you think, well, this isn't hard. And then you see the parent whose child is throwing this massive fit or not listening. And so you naturally think, well, that parent must be doing it wrong. They must be, you know, missing something or not implementing appropriate strategies with their kid. But the reality is that, of course, all kids are different. And so very often parents with challenging kids start with that same kind of strategy. And what they realize is that, you know, their child is spending all of their time, you know, with consequences in timeout or being punished. Then that child is starting to internalize it and think I'm a bad person or they're acting out more. And so, like I said to my husband once, He said, oh, today our daughter, she was a toddler. And for the first time he said, oh, she got a little, she got a little sassy this morning. And I said, oh, what happened? And he said, well, I told her to put on her shoes. And she said, no. And I said, well, what happened then? And I said, he said, well, I said, young lady, you need to put on your shoes or else we're not going to be able to go to horse camp. And I said, oh, and then what happened? And he said, well, then she put on her shoes. And I went, are you kidding me? Like, let me tell you how this could go down. She says, no, you say, young lady, put on your shoes. She throws the shoes at you. You say, go to timeout. 
Now she, instead of going to go to timeout, she starts running around, throwing things, breaking things. Now what are you going to do? And he goes, oh, well, kids do that? And I went, yes, see, this is the difference. And so, so, you know, the fascinating thing, of course, is that the research shows that over time, kids' behavior is more predictive of future parenting behavior. In other words, we're responding to our kids a lot more and our parenting behavior is predicting future child behavior. And so very often when you see a child misbehaving, you know, if you'll see that parent being what we might think, we meaning a, a parent who doesn't have a you know challenging child might think, oh, they're being too permissive. They're not, you know, really disciplining that child in the moment. Well, it's probably because that parent has learned when you do that, the behavior escalates, the child gets more upset. And that, in fact, we know that in the moment when a child is dysregulated, the best thing to do is to help them acknowledge their feelings, help them calm back down. But it can then give the impression to outsiders, oh, that that parent is too permissive and that's why that child is misbehaving. So I think when we really understand what's going on here, we can also be more empathetic and sympathetic toward other parents. Other parents and toward ourselves. Yes. So let's get into where is their power in figuring out the code to what works best with your child versus throwing up your hands and saying, nothing works. Forget it. So the other piece of the puzzle, of course, is that it's not just our kids who have genetic codes that influence who they are and their temperament. Of course, we all have our own genetic codes as parents and people too. And that's why, you know, some kids' temperaments might be more challenging for some parents, or that's why certain things might not at all be a big deal to your partner, but they drive you crazy. Or, you know, there might be a match between, you know, certain parents and children, and there isn't with the other parent. And so I think by being intentional of and mindful of okay, this is how my child is wired. This is sort of their temperament. Then what we can do is instead of always reacting to our child, we can get in front of it, right? We can be proactive. And so I'll go back to the example of, I am naturally very extroverted and my son is very introverted, which of course takes you a little while to figure out because when your kids are little, kind of along for the ride, and I talked about how on Saturday mornings, I would try and take him for these big outings and we'd be sitting at the breakfast table and I would say, guess what? Today we're going to meet up with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And And all of a sudden he would sweep the cereal bowl off the table and say, I'm not going. And I'd say, okay, that is not okay, right? We don't throw our food on the ground and you are going. We've made plans and this and that. And as you might imagine, now this just escalates. I'm not going. You can't make me. This is not turning into the fun Saturday morning that I imagined. And so I realized eventually, okay, what's going on here? And when you, instead of respond to, you know, what sometimes can be perceived as the child's quote, bad behavior, and instead really try and talk to your kids and figure out like, what's going on here? Something has really upset my child. And that's when I realized he's very anxious. The idea of being with a bunch of children who he doesn't know was very anxiety provoking for him. 
And I was essentially doing the equivalent of throwing him into the deep end of the pool when he didn't know how to swim. So, you know, maybe some kids naturally are good with that. They can run with it. He couldn't. And so instead, what we did, and this is an example of how now you can actually use that information, is I realized, okay, he can't handle this yet. So we'll still go out, but first we'll go to places, just the two of us. So now he's familiar with the place we're going to. Now we'll meet up with one other friend and, you know, their child. And so now it's more familiar. And then he gets familiar with that child. Now we add in another one to the mix. And eventually you get to the point where he's far more comfortable. He's 16 now. I will tell you, he will, you know, it's still not his favorite thing to do, but he will hang out at the family gatherings and make small talk with the adults and those sorts of things. He doesn't love it. His preference is still to be one-on-one with close friends or with, you know, his family. And, and he recognizes this now about himself, but when he was little, it was really up to me to realize it and then to put in place strategies to help him. And now a quick word from my sponsor. Do you remember Pillsbury Crescent Rolls when you were younger and they came out of the oven and they were so warm and delicious? Okay, well, I do. And so as a treat at home, I was so excited to get to try the new Pillsbury Crescent Rolls just to add to the weeknight dinner rotation, make it a little exciting, make it a little delicious and surprise my kids because it's just not in my usual roundup, but it is so kid pleasing. It doesn't take very long to make and it's filled with delicious ingredients that transform the crescents from a side dish to a main dish. With Pillsbury Crescents, it's easy to fill, roll, bake. It's fun to do with your kids, to please picky eaters who kind of get more excited by being engaged with the fun. And then you can move on with your evening. As you know, I like an easy way to have a fun dinner. So roll up your favorite ingredients into a crescent roll. I like the real easy cheese crescent rolls. You can find Pillsbury in the dairy aisle. Dinner prep is in 30 minutes or less. And the prep part is in like five minutes or less. So roll up your favorite ingredients into a crescent roll. With Pillsbury Crescents, weeknight recipes are as easy as fill, roll, and bake. Find more weeknight dinner recipes at pillsbury.com. Can you talk about kind of when you have that kind of kid? versus a kid who might be perceived as easier, more extroverted, just like less challenging, frankly, for certainly many of our temperaments. Yes. Can you talk about both the benefits and the maybe weaknesses that you might want to bolster? I always say there is good and there is not so good attached to all of our characteristics. So in the example I gave, it was challenging because I am so extroverted and I was planning all these activities that I imagined were fun because we only know the way our brains work. It's a natural default to assume other people's brains are working the same way. Now, you can imagine if I was a more introverted parent with a more introverted child, then, you know, I might have been planning outings to the library together and that would have been great. Or if I had a child who was more extroverted, 
then we would have been, you know, at the sporting events together in the crowd cheering and it would have all been great. So it turns out extroversion, introversion is, is a dimension that when you and your child happen to be matched, it can make it easier. When there's a mismatch, it can make it challenging. That's not true of all temperamental dimensions. So emotionality is one where when you're matched, when your child gets real worked up and your natural tendency is to get real worked up, right? That Then you've got two people who are getting really worked up. And so learning both as a parent to help regulate yourself while also helping your child learn those skills can be important. But for example, extroverted kids very often, and extroversion is something that's rewarded in our society because these are the kids who want to talk to adults and are raising their hands in the classroom. But the flip side is, you know, kids who are more extroverted, they also need to learn. You have to allow others to speak. You have to learn to take your turn, those sorts of things. It can be exhausting for parents if they are more introverted to have a child who's always wanting to be on the go. And so I talk in the book about, you know, activities for parents for whom there's matched or mismatches on temperament to kind of find things that work for both of you. At the other end, for example, on the more introversion side, well, of course, kids who are more introverted, they're often better listeners. They're taking things in. They can be more perceptive. The flip side, so they can be great friends because they tend to be very attentive to the person that they're with. That said, because our society very often rewards extroversion, they can also be kind of forgotten or left behind if they have more extroverted siblings or in a classroom, they're less likely to raise their hand. Teachers might think they're not engaged, they're not as smart. And so by understanding kind of these things about your child, you can be proactive for example, let's take the more introverted child. Very often at the beginning of school years, there's a chance to talk to teachers. And you know, often I have parents ask me, how much should I tell my teacher or talk to my teacher about my child? And I always say, hey, you all have shared goals there, right? You both want to help this child learn and develop. And so in the case of, for example, introversion, if you have a child who is quieter and is more likely to hang back, letting the teacher know that right? That they might become overwhelmed in big group activities, but, and they might be very quiet. It might seem like they're not participating, but they're taking it in. And if, you know, especially in smaller group activities, they're much more engaged and, you know, please don't think that they're not paying attention. That's helpful information for a teacher to have. And so even things that as parents, we might think of as, oh, this is really challenging in a small child. So for example, high emotionality, those big feelings, right? They might be really hard for us as parents, but when they get older and they are channeling that into wanting to fight for causes and push the edge of the envelope on things they see that aren't right, you know, that is going to make us really proud or impulsivity and risk-taking. Whew. You know, that can be really hard when they're little kids and they're running around and they're giving you a heart attack and they're dangling from trees and ending up in the ER. That said, CEOs, entrepreneurs, fighter pilots, they all tend to be much higher in risk-taking, novelty-seeking. And so I think there's good 
and not so good associated with everything. And one of the greatest gifts I think we can give our kids is to help them see their natural characteristics as strengths, that they can see the amazing things in that. They don't feel like we're trying to change them or that it think they're lesser because maybe they're more introverted and they're not as sporty or active in class or, you know, that they, they do have these big emotions and, you know, whatever it might be to help our kids see their characteristics as strengths and, and really play those up to help accentuate them and to see the places where their characteristics are getting them into trouble or might not be so helpful or might get them into trouble in the future. Risk-taking kids are also more likely to use substances, you know, engage in sex earlier, et cetera. How can we get in front of those things and help reduce those risks as well? So by understanding our, our kids' temperaments, we can do both of these things, help accentuate their strengths and reduce potential pitfalls or challenges down the road. Okay, last question. And then at another time, we're going to talk about what you just said. So when we're thinking about these various temperaments, at what point is there a distinction between a temperament that might be highly reactive, highly sensitive, highly impulsive? At what point does it become something that looks like a when to worry? Or what point would it present as a diagnosis? And how do we figure out who our children are and support that kid and get the best of them instead of the parts that might turn in a direction that could be really difficult? I'm so glad you asked that because this is one of the questions I most frequently get from parents. How do I know when my child is high impulsivity or is it ADHD? How do I know if I just have a highly emotional or fearful or anxious child, or is this actually anxiety? And what I always tell parents is that's not the right question to ask because all behavior is distributed on a bell curve, meaning, you know, parents will say, is this normal? Meaning it is normal to have some kids who are very low and some kids who are very high and lots of kids in the middle. And when you have a child who is very high, the reality is when we are making clinical diagnoses, there is no magic line. We draw a somewhat arbitrary line on that bell curve and say, kids who are at this high end, now they meet criteria for anxiety or depression or ADHD or oppositional defiant disorder. But there's no magic line of they have it or they don't have it. And so instead, what I think is far more helpful to think about is, is this behavior causing challenges in my child's life that I'm not able to manage? And that doesn't mean that you as a parent can't handle it. It means, is this causing impairment? Is it interfering with the child's relationship with you? with their friends at school? And if so, it's less about like, is this ADHD? Is this anxiety? And more about, hey, 
we could all use some help as parents. And when you have kids who are at that high end, that is when it's time to, it's, you know, a great thing to reach out and talk to somebody about getting help, whether that's the pediatrician, the clinical psychologist. And sometimes we, as you know, just kind of a rough rule of thumb, will say, if this behavior is challenging and it's lasted, you know, a month or more, or there's been a change in the child's behavior that might indicate something is wrong. But the people I know who are most likely and quickest to reach out are other psychologists and psychiatrists, because we realize raising kids is hard. And even when you have a degree in child behavior, it can be hard to make those calls. And the reality is the other piece some parents worry is about is, but what happens when my child has a diagnosis? Will they be labeled? Is this going to be a problem? Most all of the child psychologists, psychiatrists that I know, they are also less worried about labels they will often use them for billing and billing, insurance billing, purposes. Totally. But really what they're trying to figure out is what's going on with this child and how can we best help them, whether that's behavioral interventions, additional supports at home, at school, whether it's medication. And so if you are worried about your child, then I think the answer is always yes. You know, don't hesitate to reach out and get help. I just got a text yesterday. I just thought it was funny because this is from parents of a younger child. It says over the last few weeks, we'll call him Billy. Billy screams during meals. It's very hard to take him out to dinner, if not impossible. He's 13 months old. He'll eat a little bit and then he wants to run around. And if he's confined to sitting in a high chair, he screams. Is this normal? And how should we respond and react? Furthermore, he refuses to sit still. He just wants to go, go, go. Put him in a car seat. He wants to go. Wanting him to sit down, he screams. What do we do? And I thought it was so sweet because they're clearly first-time parents. And this is a one-year-old with yes. a very active temperament. I know this one-year-old, so I know he's he couldn't stop moving. He was so curious and all over the place and having such a good time. It's just that kid probably isn't going to a restaurant with you for a while. Yes. <laughs> like that's yeah. get a babysitter and have date night. But it's not about fixing the kid. And I was thinking, oh, what do you do? The answer is not going to be here is the magic way to get your child to sit at the restaurant. Now, of course, you could you put some entertainment on for five minutes, maybe that would help. Could you have a busy bag? Could you like give exciting foods? I mean, there are ways to, to get around it for five, 10, 15 minutes. But the truth is what I was reading was there is a misunderstanding that there's a temperament and an age that's not matching with what the parents want to be doing. And it's as simple as that, but it was so indicative of the stress that parents are under. Like I could feel that they were telling the story of like, how do we get this kid to sit nicely at a restaurant or to, you know, do the things that we want him to be doing at this 13 months old age of just being wildly excited to be able to move around. It's just kind of who he is. Absolutely. And that is such a beautiful example. Well, the answer here is probably that you're either going to have a lot of 
teaching moments as you're trying to get him to learn to sit nicely in a restaurant. But the reality is you're probably going to want to get a babysitter and go out to the restaurant on your own because this is not a child who is going to, you know, probably any time while they're a toddler, love to be sitting in their you know seat coloring nicely. And it's even harder when parents look around and they see the the baby at the table next to them doing that, sitting nicely in their high chair. Happily entertained. Totally. And I think that's such a beautiful example of how understanding your child's temperament can also help you think, okay, this is who this kiddo is. So how do we want to address that? And sometimes that's going to be, let's proactively work on helping this child develop skills. But I'm with you, with the, with the one-year-old who's bouncing all over, I'd rather just get a babysitter and enjoy dinner out with my partner. I was just thinking about like you realizing that about the weekends or, you know, I also have one introvert and one extrovert just to give them a big cliche. They're the complete opposite and I'm not as introverted and I am not as highly attuned to the world. So I find it easier to be around exciting, loud, whatever. And it took me a while to realize if I eventually, if I'm exposing this particular child to that, I then need more rest time for her after. Yes. It's exactly. just, we're different. Some I remember I had a roommate who was fine going out, but then if she was going out, she needed, she would always say like, okay, now I need to go into my cave. Yes. And And that's such a nice example of how these things are with us throughout development. The manifestations might change. The behaviors might change. And yes, your child is going to grow in development. And in adolescence, they might try on some different, you know, different sort of personality temperament kind of things as they're sort of figuring out who they are. But the reality is, for example, you know, that that impulsive toddler who's not sitting well in the high chair at the restaurant, you know, parents might want to think, oh, maybe quiet time at the library is also not going to be a great fit for this child. You know, maybe taking them to the museum to look at the new exhibit is not going to be a great fit. This is a child who instead, maybe we need to enroll them in sports and outdoor camps and let's run them. And, you know, now as they get older, they might be the child who they're going off to college and they're going to want to pledge a fraternity, get involved in all kinds of different things. The more introverted child might look different. You know, they might be the ones who you can enjoy your library time together. But then being mindful of this when they're going off to college, you know, the more extroverted parent we want need to be thinking about that we're not going, well, make sure you join lots of clubs because that's how you're going to take advantage of college and you're you're not doing all the things that you could or should be doing. They are going to have a different experience yeah. and it can be a great experience for them. And it's not necessarily going to be our experience. And I think this is the way that as our kids are developing, thinking about how are we helping them become the best version of themselves, you know, raising the child that we have, not the child that we might have wished we'd had. That is really where I think we can have such a big impact on our kids in helping them feel comfortable in their own skin, feel loved, and to really reach their potential. 
Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.